these these problems they, they develop for when, when you look at it um, for very understandable reasons a lot of the time so if we think about psychosis from a psychological understanding then there's this idea and, and, and view that psychosis is, is often a response to things that happen in our lives so particularly things that are really traumatic or stressful there's really good research to support this as well um, you know so some of the research these um, associations between trauma um, and psychosis and childhood trauma and psychosis in later life and, and that level of association it, that they found is quite similar to smoking and lung cancer so it's quite a strong link um, and also we know there's, there's there's a sort of dose response relationship between these things as well so the more trauma that someone experiences the more likely they are to go on to develop um, problems with psychosis Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today you're going to hear from Dan Lawrence. Dan is a forensic psychologist who's based in a secure mental health service in South Wales, where he provides input into medium and low secure services for men. He's also a PhD student, associate tutor and academic supervisor at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Really pleased you could join us today, Dan. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Um, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to be invited, actually. Um, I should mention that I'm a big fan of the, the show and I've, I've been listening since uh, you started as, I suppose, a bit of a, a side hustle, maybe, in, in, in lockdown. Um, so, yes, it's, it's it's a real pleasure to be invited to speak with you both today. Thank you. Hi, Dan. Uh, that's a very nice thing for you to say. Thanks very much indeed for that. Um, I'm interested to hear about your service, actually, because I've just seen several uh, um, approved premises in South Wales, Swansea and Cardiff, and they both had a connection with the local forensic service, which is extremely unusual across the okay. sort of breadth of England and uh, Wales. Anyway, that's a by the way. <laughs> yeah. Dan, can you tell us something about your career pathway? Did you always want to be a forensic psychologist? Yeah, of course, no problem. Um, it's, it's a bit of a, a convoluted journey, actually, so I'll, I'll, I'll try my best to, to, to keep it uh, succinct. Um, so no, the short, short answer is no, I didn't always want to be uh, a forensic psychologist. Um, so I'm, I'm from a, I come from like a working class background and, and I grew up in quite a, I guess, a poverty uh, stricken area. Um, so it, those sorts of careers were, were commonplace, I guess. Um, it, you know, my sort of awareness of those sorts of careers was quite limited during, during my, my, my childhood and, and, and stuff. Um, so actually, it wasn't until I got to university, actually, that I, I really started to become interested in, in, in being a psychologist. Um, so I was always really, really interested in, in sport when I was growing up. And if you're if you're from the part of the world where I'm from, that's more often than not, that's rugby. <laughs> There's always had real ambitions about being a rugby player. Um, and when it came to, to sort of... Um, picking and, and deciding and applying to go to university and stuff um I was, I was really more focused on on the sports side of things so my, my thinking was was around um this university has got a really good sport and, and in particular rugby setup 
Um, so I'll, I'll, psychology sounds quite interesting. Uh, so I'll just do that degree. Uh, about you know, I can really focus on the sport. I suppose I always had a bit of an interest in in sort of like true crime sort of books and shows and films and stuff. Um, but then what happened was when I got to to university, I, I um, didn't end up playing any rugby at uni actually, uh, and and I was then all of a sudden just kind of left stuck with this psychology undergraduate degree um so i had to sort of pick it up and run with it i guess and and um it was quite early on i realized that it was the the forensic and the, the clinical sort of aspects of it um that appealed to me the most so i started to just look at you know what you need to do to to, to become a forensic psychologist um and then try to you know do, do what, what, I, what i need to do get an experience and knuckling down a bit with my studies and, and things like that so why didn't you do any rugby? Uh, so I, I, I picked up some injuries is, is what happened in the end. Um, yeah, and then it just became, it got to the point where it just wasn't worth, it was sort of repeated injuries, so it wasn't worth trying to, to persevere with in the end. It was, it was spending more time sort of sat on the sidelines than I was actually playing, so it just, just fizzled out in the end. Um, mm, yeah, it's a pretty tough, tough sport, isn't it? Yeah. So, did your forensic training uh, prepare you adequately, do you think, for working in the um, mental health settings? Yeah, I think it, I think it did, actually. Um, so all my experience um, prior to, to starting my psychology training was in um, predominantly in mental health settings. And then mental health settings was where I, I, I did my training. So, so the sort of on the job learning and and training that you do when you train to be a forensic psychologist that was all based in in secure mental health settings and i think you know more and more what i've learned as my my you know as my i've developed in my career and, and gone along is that actually there's such an overlap between people who use criminal justice services and and, 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 and mental health services and, and secure mental health services um this, the stories are so often very similar you know they, they they come from the, the problems people present with often come from a place of adversity and trauma. Um, so I suppose, you know, what we what we end up working with in, in all settings really is, is, is very human problems, not like pr prisoner problems versus mental health patient problems, if you like. Um, and of course, there's you know high level of, of mental health distress across all aspects of the criminal justice system as well. So there really is quite an overlap. So I think with that in mind, the, the, you know, the training did prepare me quite well. And, and I, I think those sort of core skills that you develop as a psychologist is that you really, you really have to sort of um, yeah, just develop and evidence your ability to be able to do them. It just set you in good stead to, to, to work with, with people from all walks of life, I think. And you think of things like, you know, good communication skills and that sort of thing. Um, I suppose maybe the clinical training um, compared to forensic psychology training perhaps might have given me a bit more of a, a comprehensive um, grounding in, in like therapy models and providing therapy and things like that. Um, but overall, I, th I think it prepared me really quite well. How, how did you decide to opt for one rather than the other? I think it was it was just it was just around at the time um, access to to the particular course. So I was I was already I'd already I'd, I'd, I'd finished my undergraduate degree and then I'd 
my, my initial idea was about trying to get onto the clinical um, psychology training. Um, and then, you know, you start to learn that that's really quite a competitive uh, place to try, to try and get on. Um, so it was really about trying to um, develop my experience and, and, and I guess my qualifications to make me more uh, appealing perhaps to, to a clinical course. Uh, so I ended up doing a master's in forensic psychology. And then the university where I did that, um, so Cardiff Metropolitan University, what they, what they provided then was quite a nice, um, straightforward way to transition from the master's to the, uh, it's the postgraduate diploma in forensic psychology that they offer. Um, so it's all the same, it was kind of like the same staff team who would be doing the master's. So it was just an easy, quite an accessible um, uh, course to, to get on at that time. Thank you. I mean. I find that very interesting because forensic psychology is notorious for its kind of limited uh, clinical practice components. Uh, and yet the pathway you followed seems to have been extremely clinical. Um, in, in, in. So you, you specialised in working with people who experience psychosis. What are some of the challenges people with psychosis face? Yeah, so I, I suppose it might be helpful to think about um, what it is that we mean by the, the term psychosis and like pretty much any any definition of, of some sort of term or, or, or concept that, that we, we, we talk about in, 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 our, in our work. Uh, if, you, if you type the term psychosis into, into Google or you come back with is like a thousand different, slightly different definitions of what the problem is, but where they all seem to agree and what they're consistent about is that it's a type of problem, it's a type of mental health problem where the person um, experiences some level of departure from reality, I suppose. It's quite often used interchangeably with terms like mental illness, schizophrenia, and then and perhaps more um, like uh, negative or pejorative terms like madness and, and lunacy and things like that. So when people develop these, this, this type of problem, what, what happens is that they tend to um, experience some, some really quite unusual things. Um, so some of the things they might develop problems with is like they might be sensory in nature. So they might have some, some quite unusual sensory experiences. So perhaps uh, like a quite, quite common one we see in our services is um, some people might hear voices when there's no one there or no one talking. Uh, they might see less common, but, but they, they might see things, smell, feel sensations that are unusual as well. Then at other times, their problems may be to do with um, like holding certain beliefs that seem to be a little bit unusual, or a little bit unlikely, um, but these beliefs can become really quite fixed uh, and, and I suppose held, um, held on too strongly despite evidence that, that seems to kind of seems to be of the contrary or seems to undermine the beliefs um, and if we were to put like medical language on these terms we might refer to them as uh, delusional beliefs so quite often in secure services those those beliefs uh, are kind of held in a with, with like a, a, a like a paranoid theme or a paranoid flavor to them so they're usually about people wanting to harm or persecute the person in one way or another um, people might believe that they're, they're really important, talented or special or, or powerful in some way. Then other people might have some sort of disrupt, disruptions to the way that they think and that they feel. So they might experience some problems where their thoughts become like uh, jumbled or they might have difficulty communicating them. 
Uh, some people might jump around between topics um, when, they, when they're talking to people, so making it really quite difficult to, to follow and understand what it is they're trying to talk to you about. Then others might have problems like the regulating, regulating their, their, their feelings and their behaviours and have problems managing things like anxiety or anger and, and then their, their kind of behavioural responses to these feelings. Then others can, can, can you know, they can be quite withdrawn. Um, uh, they might isolate themselves, they might lose interest in things that they did previously, they might be sort of unmotivated to do things. So I guess it's a very, very broad term, which encompasses a lot of different types of problems, really. Um, and, and it's probably worth noting that whilst we do have these overarching terms like psychosis and things like that, um, these experiences do tend to differ quite a lot between different people, even though we might talk about two people as having psychosis, if you like. It's likely that the, 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 the sort of specific things that the, the people experience uh, differ. So some... Some people, two people might hear voices, but the content and the, the level of um, distress that experience might be might be completely different and kind of the same with, with the beliefs that people hold as well. Thanks, thanks, Dan. That's a very full and uh, clear answer you've given there. Do you think there are ways uh, in which psychosis might be adaptive? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, the, the, these, these problems, they, they develop for when, when you look at it um, for very understandable reasons a lot of the time. So if we think about psychosis from a psychological understanding, then there's this idea and, and, and view that psychosis is, is often a response to things that happen in our lives. So particularly things that are really traumatic or stressful. There's really good research to support this as well. So so in particular by uh, the great Richard Bentall, uh, as we refer to him here. Um, you know, so some of the research he's done with, with, with colleagues has found um, associations between trauma um, and psychosis and childhood trauma and psychosis in later life. And, and that level of association it, that they found is quite similar to smoking and lung cancer. So it's quite a strong link. Um, and also we know there's, there's, there's a sort of dose-response relationship between these things as well. So the more trauma that someone experiences, the more likely they are to go on to develop um, problems with psychosis. And then if we think about trauma-informed or perhaps trans-diagnostic models um, of understanding people's difficulties, so something perhaps like the power threat meaning framework, we can start to think of like experiences that often get called symptoms as, as being strategies that, that were developed in order to keep somebody safe or, or respond to a threat that they were experiencing in their environment, perhaps. So to paint a bit of a picture, if we think of somebody who's, who's grown up in a, uh, perhaps a, a, an abusive home environment where it was common for them to be hurt, um, then it would have been really helpful for them to be able to be vigilant to the possibility somebody's going to hurt them um, and, and to sort of pick up on subtle signs that abuse might be about to happen perhaps and of course it would be helpful for their safety to, to perhaps be suspicious or mistrusting of the person who, who was being abusive towards them so those things are really really helpful in that context but of course if, when they become exacerbated or perhaps if they continue when the person is no longer in a threatening environment, then essentially what we're describing is, is paranoia. You know? So 
and, and there's a there's there's a really interesting recent research paper as well by the um the, the cognitive uh cognitive approaches to psychosis team at Oxford University and, and where they've started to look a little bit more at what was sort of classically being called grandiose delusions because I think um, the majority of the research that has looked at these, these sort of unusual beliefs in it has tended to focus more on paranoid beliefs rather than grandiose beliefs. So they started to have a look, little look into this to this experience as well. And, and, and actually what they're suggesting is that, that we rephrase it and, and refer to it as um, uh, beliefs or delusions of exceptionality rather than grandiose delusions. And what they what they theorized is that um, these types of beliefs kind of develop for people to provide a sense of like purpose or belonging or self-identity, perhaps where those things have been lacking. Um, I think the, the reference is um, Isham et al. So it's a really interesting paper. And then if we if we start to think as well then about you know other other um, experiences that, that fall under that that kind of broad uh overarching term psychosis or something like voices there's um there's a really wonderful ted talk by um eleanor london i think it's quite old now it must be about 10 years old i think where she talks about her own experiences of, of hearing voices and that was what she came to realize was that the voices were the expressions of trauma and abuse and emotional problems that she she never had the chance to process and resolve and, and of course what, we, what we're talking about as well is that very human processes so that many people experience from time to time but i suppose when we talk about you know like clinical psychosis then we're thinking about the um extreme extreme end of, of those of those processes and experiences um so for example you know many of us have felt a little bit suspicious or, or paranoid when we walked into a room and all of a sudden everybody stops talking <laughs> or, or perhaps when we're walking alone late at night or something like that that's a really helpful um, explanation of, of, of um, how adaptive and normal in the context of someone's life those those experiences um, may be. I was just wondering, though, you know, some of those things that you're describing, we see similarities in, in, within the prison system, for instance, perhaps a lot of people that would meet diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder in the case of the grandiosity or exceptionality, which is a nicer way to put that or paranoid personality disorder. Do you have a sense of what it is that um, causes that extra fragmentation for some people where they become detached from, totally detached from reality and end up having these experiences? You know, what, what makes a difference that um, where somebody is becomes psychotic as opposed to perhaps wouldn't be described in that way? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think it's a really good question that's, it's probably quite difficult difficult to answer with any certainty i think um yeah I, I i don't know whether there's something about the i don't even know if there's something about the severity of the experiences that might um whether it just comes down to sort of personal like individual like factors for the person and of course it becomes all the more tricky doesn't it when these these problems overlap and get intertwined as well so quite often in Forensic services, we you know we might see somebody whose psychosis stabilizes, but then we still got those kinds of like personality traits underneath as well. Um, it's probably I you know if I was to theorize or hypothesize about it, I'd, I'd say it's probably something 
to do with the, the meaning that people make about their experiences um, and how, I mean, perhaps there's kind of like the degree of threat and the need to respond to that threat, maybe. Um, yeah, but that's a really, really good question. No, thank you. I appreciate you kind of like making making an effort there to answer that for us. Um, I think you what you're really highlighting is just how complex it is mm. when we're talking about people whose whose problems intrude and cause a lot of distress for them in quite extensive ways. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Do you like just out of interest? Do you have any thoughts about that, Naomi? No, I don't. I suppose my inclination would was like yours to think that maybe there's something about the severity of the experience being so great that maybe as a you know as a younger person the only way to cope with that like you say to be to to try and compartmentalize it in a way that perhaps somebody whose um the personality is adapted to to incorporate the belief is able to hold on to some some sense of consciousness um you know and uh, in terms of consciousness and deliberateness of the rules that they're living their lives by but no I don't and and that's why I was curious to hear what what you had to say thank you and you gave a, a a great description of the sort of varied nature of uh, psychosis and its uh, adaptive forms do you think those phenomena pose a challenge to service providers yeah yeah I think I think they can and I, I think sometimes where the, the challenge is, um, so sometimes those experiences can be really quite hard to make sense of, I guess. They can be quite um, uh, confusing, maybe, and, and a bit overwhelming for clinicians because, of course, they, 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 they seem quite unusual. And it's sometimes quite difficult to put your finger on or, or figure out what it is that the person's trying to communicate with you then. So then, of course, it's, it's difficult to know how to support that person or, or what treatment needs to be provided, I guess. But, you know, so that can be difficult. And, and I think um, one of the problems as well is that st still our, our kind of understanding or the, the, the predominant model for viewing these problems in mental health services is a really sort of medical approach to it. So if we, if we think of like symptoms then as being uh, safety strategies or threat responses, um, but if, if, if I guess, sorry, if we if we think of the safety strategies and threat responses people develop to help them keep safe, if we view those as being just symptoms of an illness, um, then we, we kind of run the risk of only really addressing um, problems at the surface level, and we, we might miss or perhaps ignore the underlying function and, and why the, why the problems develop in the first place. So, you know, essentially what we, what we might be doing by trying to get, get rid of or cure some of these symptoms, if you like, um, is that we're, we're, we're encouraging people to drop um, long-standing safety strategies without um, helping them to develop a sense of safety in other ways, perhaps, or to be able to manage threat in other ways. Um, and then that's kind of, you know, what, what, what people, people, there's a saying that, that um, services sometimes are... Uh, uh, mopping up the floor before they, they turn off the taps, if you like. Um, and then the other problem is that, that, that many, many people, they, they don't report positive experiences of, of mental health services. So, so we know that like iatrogenic harm is a real risk and it can, it can be a problem. And, and then some people refer to themselves as like survivors of psychiatry. 
and described by their time and services um, was hugely distressing and traumatizing for them. So the problem there, the challenge to services there is that if we think about psychosis and, and other mental health issues as, as being a reaction to life events, such as trauma and adversity, um, and if when people come into services, they're experiencing further trauma or becoming re-traumatized, we really do run the risk of, of compounding or exacerbating the very problems that we're, we're trying to support people with or, or trying to do something about. And that might be then why you know, some researchers and, and some authors um, have observed that, that outcomes uh, to psychiatry in terms of people's recovery have improved very little for, for a long, long time. Thank you. Thank you. It's a bit depressing to hear, actually, that even in um, in specialist services for psychosis, that there's, there's still that tendency for the medical model to prevail, given how much we know about how people's histories play a part in in their current presentation. But it, that was really helpful to, to think about how people might be experienced as being a challenge. I wondered whether there are any special measures you would recommend to a clinician in order to, that could help engage somebody with psychosis and treatment, you know, if you've got to overcome these barriers of trust. Yeah, yeah, so um, I suppose generally speaking, the way, the, the way in which we engage with, with people um, who experience psychosis doesn't, doesn't differ a great deal to, to anybody else really, um, but as you've, as you've, you've alluded to, Naomi, there, the, the, the barriers to, to developing the, the relationship with the person, which of course we know is of huge importance. If, if treatment and therapy is going to be any good, we, we need a good therapeutic relationship. So, so the barriers, I think, are perhaps a little bit um, more evident, maybe, or a little bit more tricky to overcome for people with psychosis. So, for example, um, if somebody feels very suspicious about other people or, or mistrusting, of course, it, it can be it can be more difficult to develop um, a trusting, safe relationship with your team or your or your therapist for, for obvious reasons. Really, uh, if somebody's struggling to communicate or their thinking is really jumbled up, perhaps, for example, then and building a relationship and engaging in the process of treatment can, and, and understanding everything can obviously be be really quite difficult. So the key really is to to think about how we might overcome these barriers, I suppose. And um, so, for example, if someone's really suspicious or struggles to trust other people, then perhaps we might start with a really gradual approach to building a relationship with them, starting with just making ourselves seem um, like more present and familiar to them. Um, and then like things like validation and expression of concern and empathy about people's experiences, um, I think really helps. And a lot of the time, like trying to challenge perhaps unusual beliefs head on or trying to convince a person of what they're experiencing isn't real or it's just part of a mental illness or mental health problem it really does get you nowhere. Um, and what work can lead to is like really getting bogged down in content and debate about people's experiences. But of course, what we really want to do is, is help people with their distress. We want to work with the distress. But quite a lot of the time when, when people, especially when people have been in services for a long long time they've they, they, they more often than not been repeatedly told that they've got a mental illness and you know, well, you know well, you're, you're just mad what you're, what you're experiencing really isn't real so just help helping to or, or provide in a sense uh, for the person to feel um, believed 
really um, can be really helpful for them. And then perhaps like like I was I was I was I was talking about just now when um, it can be quite tricky for services and practitioners to make sense of some of these difficulties because sometimes you know the experiences that people uh, voice and communicate to us they don't make much sense you know, if people sort of um, you know started to depart from reality a little bit. Um, so I think sometimes we, we, we do have to think outside the box to try and figure out what it is that person's trying to communicate or what, what emotional experience their distress represents. Um, yeah, and, and, and just trying to like connect the dots um, for them um, and, and, and perhaps for the teams that you work in as well. I think that can be helpful. And, and I, I, feel, I do feel like I've given my medical colleagues a little bit of a, of a bash in uh, this afternoon, but... I, I do. I do think there's a there's a place for medication as well, um, particularly with people who are you know experiencing the, the highest, most severe levels of distress. Um, even if that's just to kind of reduce their distress, so they can get to the point where they can um, engage in other interventions or you know work towards their goals or whatever it might be. Well, in terms of redressing the balance, in terms of input from psychiatry, have you read Brain Energy by Chris Palmer? I've not. No. It's a, it's it's quite a new quite a new book, but he it's, it's written by a psychiatrist. But he argues that all um, all mental illness is a is a met metabolic disorder of the brain, and that okay. that's the common factor. It, it, and he he I mean I was a bit reticent to read the book, thinking oh it's going to be going down this biological model. Um, but he was on um, the Andrew Huberman podcast talking about this brain energy theory and it's really fascinating so using a ketogenic diet they they had patients who had symptoms of psychosis who became symptom free by eating a ketogenic diet they they couldn't then go on and eat cake or bread afterwards because the symptoms would recur but actually found a really powerful effect of eating a ketogenic diet i, I mean i think it's a book that all mental health professionals should read actually is not dismissing the role that trauma plays in in the onset of symptoms but actually I think when people have really quite distressed by the kinds of symptoms they have um I think he's got some some really thought-provoking ideas um about about the origin of, of mental illness yeah that, that sounds really interesting actually be, um, if you can pass the uh, reference over to me I'm going to be really grateful I, I will do and uh, you know I think we could have actually held a whole conversation probably about psychosis with you today Dan but I also you know recently read a paper that you were part of producing that was um, referring to um, restrictive practices and so I really want to move on to talk about that for, for the second part of the interview and you're part of a team that's been exploring the use of restrictive practices within psychiatric settings can you describe what you mean by restrictive practices in the first instance? Yeah, of course. And um, I should probably mention that this is the um, to restrictive practices and, and reducing restrictive practices is the, um, the kind of topic uh, of my PhD research. So um, as anybody who's ever met a PhD student will know, there's nothing more that PhD students like to talk about than and their PhD research, <laughs> so I will try to keep it, uh, like I said, succinct and, and, and try to stay on topic. Um, so yeah, restrictive practices. Um, so in, in mental health settings and, and other care settings actually as well, uh, I suppose they're things or, or interventions that staff carry out that restrict the movement or the liberty of the service user. 
and the primary aim of them is to manage the risk of harm that a service user poses to themselves or others. Um, and the idea behind them, uh, or the, the idea for them, is that they're, they're only ever used as a last resort when, when again, there's immediate risk of harm. So the terms restrictive practices and like restrictive interventions um, get used interchangeably in, in, in practice and in the literature and stuff. But um, Ada Huey, I think it was based in Nottingham, or at least she was, uh, provides a, a really quite helpful um, definition and distinction between these terms. So restrictive practices is um, an umbrella term that's used to describe like the, the broader as restrictive aspects of, of a ward environment. So like locked doors, restrictive rules, policies and dynamics. And then within this broader concept uh, sit restrictive interventions. So I suppose restrictive interventions then I, I, am, I, I sort of view as being the most severe or extreme uh, restrictive things uh, that staff do to manage the risk. Um, and, and, and I suppose they're, they're, they're where most of the focus has been in the, in the research literature and, and in terms of clinical efforts to try and reduce the, the use of restrictive practices. So the main restrictive interve interventions that we, we have and that we see are like physical restraint. So that's where like staff will use their body to restrict the movement of the service users, put them in holds, hold them down, that sort of thing. We have seclusion, which is basically locking somebody in a secure room so that then they, they don't have the option to, to get out. Um, chemical restraint, so that's where you might use um, like medications that are not prescribed for like a health problem. So it's about perhaps slowing or, or, or sedating somebody to make their behavior more manageable. And then less used in this country, but, but used more commonly in other, other places are, um, uh, is mechanical restraint. So that's where you're using some sort of like device or object to, to, to restrict somebody and stop them from moving or doing something. Um, and I suppose like the, uh, under the, the mechanical restraint is where our perhaps quintessential restrictive practice sits when we think, you know, we think of things like, um, uh, strict jackets, uh, that sort of thing. And I, I should just add that the, the terminology, so the, the, the term restrictive is a very UK-based uh, terminology. So in other countries, these things are often referred to as coercion. Um, so coerced practices and coercive interventions is, is, is what they most commonly get called elsewhere. Thank you. That's really helpful to, to have that overview. And what's the evidence for these restrictive practices being useful? And are they always useful? Do they ever exacerbate difficulties, do you think? Um, so I think there's very little research to suggest that restrictive practices have any long term benefits for service users. So sometimes it gets argued that they're important for the safety of the ward. Um, but you know, the other people who researched and worked a lot in this area comment that that's, a, that's actually a bit of a myth. I do think that they they make staff feel safe sometimes, um, and I think you know I think I'll come on to why that can be a bit of a problem. Um, but I think it, it, they they work in in a similar way to how perhaps um, like avoidance of our problems can make us feel better in the short term. Then, of course, sometimes that, that avoidance uh, is to, makes us feel better to the detriment of our, our longer-term goals and plans. 
So I think the only real benefit they have is in, is in managing imminent risk of harm. And, and my view is that, you know, as a viewer I share with many, many others, including like the government, <laughs> is that their use should only ever be used for this purpose. Um, so I do think that they have a place, but only if they're used carefully and like judiciously and, and if they're subjected to, to, to scrutiny and, and close monitoring. And, and that's really because there's a huge body of research that tells us that restrictive practices often result in harmful, harmful consequences for the people or for the service users who experience them. So, so, so service users who've, who've experienced these types of interventions or, um, or been subject to these types of interventions uh, have quite often reported feeling uh, traumatized or, or having previous experiences of trauma um, triggered. People report feeling afraid, powerless, angry, which has been described as being degrading, humiliating. Of course, they've, they've also been associated with physical health problems and, and extreme instant instances, death of service users as well. So if we think back to um, uh, like well-known cases and inquiries, uh, such as like Rocky Bennett, um, who, who sadly died in a, in a medium secure unit, I think it was back in the late 90s or something like that, wasn't it? Um, largely because of, of um, physical restraint. So it really is no wonder then that, that some, some researchers and clinicians are, are of the view that, that these practices violate human rights of the people who experience them. And then when we think back to the idea um, about like mental health problems and psychosis developing as a result of trauma and adversity, you know, then we really need to ask, are these services that use interventions that make people feel powerless, traumatized and emotionally distressed? ever going to be able to effectively and consistently help people to recover. And this, you know, this becomes particularly salient when we, when we, when we think, like when people have described how um, restrictive practices uh, as being really quite prevalent in, in mental health services um, and an, an integral part of um, forensic psychiatry. We just had a very recently, in fact, Dan had a conversation with Jessica Pandian of Inquest, who was talking about um, institutional racism. And I suppose one of the things that came up there was the application of restrictive practices um, being disproportionately applied to racialized groups of individuals. Yeah. Is that something that's come up in your, your literature review? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And, and, and like differences perhaps in, in the way in which, um, as well as like, like racialized groups, um, but differences between like men and women as well. Um, yeah, and yeah, and then we go back to like the when I mentioned about Rocky Bennett and that, that idea about institutional racism. That was a it was a it was considered to be a huge factor in his death. Mm. And you mentioned um, that staff often use them to feel safer, but I also wondered whether staff. I mean, I think we can probably all recognise times when staff teams have felt very angry, and there's been a clamour for more restrictive practices, perhaps because of anger that might not be acknowledged openly. And I think sometimes as staff, you end up, as psychologists, you can end up, psychotherapists, end up walking the line where the staff group might not feel protected and looked after enough. And yet we also have a responsibility to look after the patient and make sure the patient's not being treated in a way that's 
that's punitive. Is that, that a dynamic that you recognise from your work? Yeah, it, it is. It is, yeah. And um, I think just to sort of break break the question down a little bit, um, mm -hmm. that the, the, the emotional experiences of, of staff are, are really important when we think about things like restrictive practices and, and, and trying to reduce them. Um, so, for example, higher levels of anger and fear among staff have been associated with higher endorsement of restraint use, as well as actual increased use of restraint and seclusion. Things like low morale among staff has also been associated with repeated restrictive practice use. It, it kind of makes sense if we think of the environments where members of staff work as well. So they, be, they can be really quite challenging and, and dangerous. Um, so then, you know, what, what we think kind of happens and what I, I alluded to earlier is that uh, restrictive practices become a way to, to contain and reduce the threat that might be posed in these, these environments, which in turn helps the staff to feel safe um, and subsequently reinforces the use of restrictive practices, I think. Um, and there's all sorts of like cognitive strategies as well that, that staff use to cope with, with um, the challenging situations they find themselves in, I think, uh, but, but actually cause some problems when it comes to restrictive practices and reducing restrictive practices. Things like detachment or othering or you know, things like bravado or all those types of things can really be um, tricky sometimes because it can really influence the attitudes and the cultures of the world environment. We know that's important for, for, for those reasons. So then you talked about um, as a, a like a psychologist or psychotherapist trying to kind of um, manage the, the I suppose the, the the splits that sometimes we, we see in, in uh, between staff who, who work day to day 24 hours with um, service users and then like perhaps the, the, the um, multidisciplinary team who see that the service users far less uh, often. And I think, you know, that's a tricky, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing to try and, to try and address, I think. And, and I think it's like a, like, a, like a common challenge as well. I do think there's a few things that, that we can do to, to sort of help with this sort of thing. And I think essentially it probably sounds a little bit cliche but I think a lot of the time what it comes down to is like um, uh, communication and, and how and what teams communicate with the staff who are providing the day-to-day -day care so I think things like being transparent with decision making and communicating the reasons for decisions helps not just sort of enforcing the decision on, on, on people asking them to do it and that includes like decisions around restricted practice as well um, trying to balance the views of everybody and take on board. I, I think quite what, what can happen sometimes is that the sort of views and opinions of, of the day-to-day the -day staff can, can be missed. It's just trying to sort of show that those, those are considered and, and, and then acknowledge and validating like anxieties or frustrations that staff might have. Um, and sometimes just helping the staff to feel valued. You know, I've met a lot of staff um, who work day-to-day -day on awards. Um, to, you know, to do fantastic work in really challenging environments and they just they don't feel very valued sometimes so I think that could help. And then, That's such an important point isn't it I think when you know we know that for staff to be compassionate they need to feel that they've been treated compassionately themselves and it's quite hard I think when you see staff perhaps not being treated in an optimum way and that might be due to lack of resources or other pressures that are very difficult for the organisation but you know, at times the, the the staff's 
um, use of restrictive practice might be reflecting how they're being dealt with themselves by the organisation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and then I think there's there's there's, a, there's 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 some real kind of scope for, for like psychology with this stuff and, and sharing um, like our psychological understandings and, and perhaps formulations we might call them to, to help people to really um, understand why uh, service users are are doing the things they're doing perhaps um, and then why perhaps being really restrictive and punitive towards them uh, they're unlikely to be helpful because I think sometimes it can be you know, quite often when people are quite new to these services, there's just this idea that if people have really harsh or, and I suppose it reflects societal kind of views more broadly, doesn't it? But if, if, if people have more harsh consequences and you treat them really punitively, then it'll motivate them to change. And of course, you know, we know that's, it usually has the opposite effect, actually. Yeah. Um, so I think all that sort of thing, and, and then perhaps even having conversations about and educating people about the harmful effects of restrictive practices, uh, like we do in the service where I work, we, we all do, all the psychologists do um, like reflective practice groups for the staff. So they, they, they really do provide a good good opportunity and forum to kind of address some of this stuff. I think the, the last thing I would probably say about it is, 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 is about staff supervision as well, staff, sort of clinical supervision. And I mean, the staff who work day-to-day -day with service users, because in, in like in services where I've worked in the past, this hasn't always been something that's done with any degree of consistency or, or quality sometimes. And, you know, you think like, like I just think that my own clinical supervision is is so important to keeping me well and healthy in work. Um, and then there's people who work more in a more intense way with our service users than I do. Um, we have limited opportunity for that stuff. So I, I do really think that's something that that, that that could be helpful. Thank you. Sorry, David, I think I ran away with all the questions there, so. <clears throat> that's fine. So uh, um, I just want to touch a bit upon environment because you mentioned it a bit earlier on, but um, do you think the physical environment or building can play a role in whether restrictive practices are more likely to be used? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so like what the research tells us around this is that there, there, there are a number of environmental factors that seem to be relevant to books like, uh, like incidents of challenge and behaviour and, um, and, and restrictive practices as well. So like ward environments that are comfortable, clean, spacious, well-maintained, associated with less incidents of challenging behaviour and restrictive practices. Uh, it seems to help if there are places for privacy that service users can access, as well as kind of ensuring that wards are not too crowded and too busy. And then kind of linking to that as well is that managing the level of sensory stimuli can seem to help. There's quite an interesting study by um, Yakov and colleagues, I think um, 2017, was published uh, where they found that uh, uh, reducing um, light and sound levels during busy or stressful periods on an acute mental health ward was associated with a reduction in assaults and restraints. Have you looked at kind of like staff turnover as well and kind of like the consistency of a staff group because that that always seems to be something that that triggers more incidents? 
yeah. secure services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. So there's there's staff um, staff factors as well that that contribute to this in, in a similar way to like like what I was just talking about with the environmental factors. Um, so staff who are more experienced more training um, they tend to be more confident in, in using less restrictive approaches um, higher levels then then sort of conversely I guess higher levels of experienced or temporary agency staff uh, associated with higher levels of restrictive practices um, yeah so like the, the, the sort of skill set of staff as well the, the staffing ratio and the staff mix um, the opportunities for training all these things can can really contribute to so the, the, the kind of um, likelihood of, of staff using restrictive practices. The one about the culture of an organisation, can that play a part as well in the, in the way in which restrictive practices are used? Yeah, so like the organisation, um, so, so I guess factors at the organisational level are really, really important because I guess what they can do is, is influence the important factors like some of the stuff that we've talked about here, like staff skill set, staff mix, staff training, environmental factors, they all sort of um, determined at the organizational level. Um, and then there's things like uh, policies and procedures that are obviously determined at the organizational level, which we know can affect restrictive practices. For example, it's been found that unclear policies are associated with higher restrictive intervention use. And then things like efficient uh, objective, uh, like complaints processes, efficient investigation processes, or um, things like that, I thought to help uh, reduce challenging behaviours and restrictive practices. And of course, leadership then is, a, is another organisational factor that we might think about. And again, we know that what research tells us is that, is that that's really important to reduce restrictive practices because um, good, strong leaders can really can influence the philosophy. Uh, culture and then like the prevailing attitudes of a service um, as well as helping services to to stay on track or implement um, reducing restrictive practice interventions. That's such a good point and I guess also leaders who are present so I suppose the most recent um, controversial um, exposure of abuse of patients in hospital that we've perhaps seen on the TV has been the Edenfield unit in Manchester but it's one of many and I think those of us who work in forensic services are not surprised to see that these kind of events occur and I, th I think what's always interesting is people focus on the individuals that are acting out this abusiveness rather than there's a there tends to be a failure to attend to the the leadership and why didn't the leaders know that the culture is that bad. So, I, you know, I wonder, you know, is there anything, I mean, the Edenfield Union, I believe, had recently passed a CQC inspection, and that's not unusual to, yeah. to be a factor in when these uh, units get exposed. What could the CQC be doing differently to be more effective, do you think? Is there, is there anything that they could do? Yeah, and, and I think it's a really good question. And of course, with the, with the recency of, um, the the, the 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 scandal I guess that you, you're talking about um, it's, it's a really salient point in there and I, and I think um, bodies like the CQC or, or the HIW that we have here in Wales uh, got a bit of a difficult task um, so hospital wards uh, particularly the ones that are a bit more secure they, they're kind of by definition closed off to to sort of outside um, monitoring and, and, and perspective if you like 
Um, and to degree, to degree, you know, they have to be uh, to ensure things like confidentiality and the security, the security of the environment. Um, but when we do look at investigations of um, like a big scandal, so not you know not Eden Field, but when we look go back to things like the Bourneville, well, when the people have done the inquiries and investigations into them, we see things like um, closed cultures being identified as as as, as contributing. To these problems, um, and so that the, the problem is that secure environments really do lend themselves to this sort of thing. So, it, so it really does become difficult for bodies like the CQC to get a true reflection of how wards are day to day, uh, because ward teams will always get a bit of a heads up that somebody's coming onto the ward because they have to because of policies. Um, I think sometimes in some places it can be difficult for even. You know, managers within the unit or multidisciplinary teams within the unit to get a true reflection of what goes on. So it can be really, really tricky. Um, but I, I do think that anything that we can do to increase our ability to be open and transparent would be helpful. So I know things like um, CCTV use and body-worn cameras in mental health services is, is quite a controversial topic. I do wonder whether they would be the um, benefit for those sorts of reasons in some places, maybe. And then the other thing to consider is that when we look at investigations into these types of um, cases and incidents, what we see is high levels of restrictive practices being used. So like a, a reference went to Bonville, I think one of the findings was that there's an extortionate rate of um, physical restraint being used in that um, setting. So I do think there's something about the restrictive practices, restrictive interventions, and, and like abuse of service users kind of sitting on this continuum. So I think if we can monitor and measure the, strict, the restrictiveness of the service in a robust way um, and address any problems around elevated restrictiveness early, uh, I guess by thinking about some of the things we've talked about today, um, you know, like staff, emotional experiences, like attitudes and cultures, and I think that might help to prevent things escalating to the point where staff become abusive. The other thing I think is really important is for services to, to sort of face up to this stuff as well and turn towards our capacity for, for our, even our own services to, 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 to wind up in, 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 in this sort of situation if things were to go wrong. Um, so you quite often see in the, in the aftermath of these cases, you get you know, other services Say things like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud to guarantee that none of this goes on in our services, and you know, nothing like this will ever happen in our services. Because, because that risk is a real possibility for all services, I think again because of the factors that we've talked about. I don't think there's anything about services like Eden Field or Winterbourne View that makes them, you know, inherently abusive. I think just things sort of um, evolve and change and, and, and slowly move away from good quality care over time um, along that sort of continuum that I referenced, I guess. So I do think there's something about um, facing up to our capacity and doing something about it to be, you know, to, to, to our capacity to find ourselves in the situation if, we, if we're not careful. Yeah, that's such an important point. So, so, so Dan, what, what have you learned about yourself over the course of your work as a psychologist and, and how do you make sure you keep yourself healthy when you're working in such a challenging setting. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose um, the first thing that springs to mind is that uh, 
I mean, I mean, you know, or, or it's like as, a, as, as working in um, the psychology or psychotherapy, uh, there's something about our ability to be quite reflective about our experiences and ourselves, I guess. And, you know, this is something isn't it, that's drummed into us as we go through our training. It's something that we have to practice over and over again. And, and you know, talk to trainees about the experience. They feel a little bit like death by reflection. But it is all really good, important stuff. And, and I do think that that's helped me to have um, quite a good understanding of myself and, and be able to understand how uh, my own experiences have impacted on me and, and, and kind of led me to be the version of myself that sort of sits in the world today. Um, and I suppose that does help in terms of like certain uh, tendencies that I might have that could, if, if I were careful, lead to things being a bit tricky for me or for my loved ones. Um, so then it allows me to kind of think about, you know, what, what, what it is that's going on, I could do something about it. Um, and then in terms of keeping myself healthy, um, so I guess there's sort of work stuff that's in, I, I think is important, and then stuff outside work. So in work, like uh, like I talked about um, earlier, uh, having really good supervision and, and, and a good relationship with um, my supervisor, uh, I can I, I often say that I can I can feel what I'm doing supervision because it just it's just so helpful to, to help me keep sort of. Um, healthy and, and, and competent, I suppose, um, and good sort of peer support and peer relationships as well. I'm really lucky to work in a, in a large um, psychology department with some, some great people. And also those sort of peer, um, peer kind of relationships with the MDT members as well. Um, what helps me is, is that I, I, I have quite, a, in the things that I do, I have quite a lot of um, variety in my work. So there's the, the clinical practice side of things, there's the, the research stuff that I do as well. And um, I also do some, some private reports as well. So it's a really quite nice varied experience that I think helps me to, things to feel fresh for me. Of course, it does mean that things can, if you're not careful, they get on top of you, but you know, it's just like it's some good organizational um, skills that then and I, I think it's more and more of a help no problem. And then outside work is just it's just probably the usual stuff that people talk about. Um, quality time with with like my wife and, and family doing nice things, or, or perhaps just uh, she misses just getting like a, a, a takeaway and watching some crappy TV or something like that. Uh, that's all kind of really helpful stuff that I think um, helps me to stay healthy in work. Um, Quite often, I, 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 I sign up to sort of ultra endurance events. Um, so more often than not, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some sort of exercise training for something, whether it's like uh, ultra running or triathlon. So usually you know, doing some sort of running or cycling or swimming or you know, spending. I, I live quite close to the, um, the, the Brecon Beacons National Park in South Wales. So just you know, spending time out in the mountains is something that I really enjoy and I find helps me as well. Great. Brilliant, Dan. Thank you very much. I think we could have made that conversation going for a lot longer with a lot more questions. <laughs> just unfor unfortunately, we do try and keep them to, a, to an hour, but I think we'll have to have you back on talking about your research when it's concluded or even compassion focused therapy, which I know you're also very interested in. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, anytime. It's, it's, it's an, an absolute pleasure to, to chat with you this afternoon. Thank you. Great to meet you, Dan. You too.